Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. We are doing one more episode of 1995 Movies. I'm Michael, Jacob's on the other side. Hello everybody! Everybody! Yeah! <laughs> 95 Movies! Yeah! One more time, let's kick it out! Alright! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so five more movies from 1995, then we move on to 96. Secret, a uh, behind-the-scenes thing is I forgot to do this episode or something like that. We've been doing 96 episodes for a while. We're going back. Shh! Don't tell anybody! Not <laughs> I swear I will feed you to Cthulhu! <laughs> Alright, what is the first movie of this episode? Uh, this was a, um, a first time for me. Uh, Nick of Time with Johnny Depp and Christopher Walken. This movie is so fucking good, and it tanked horribly and destroyed. It was the final nail in John Badham's career, and if you don't know who John Badham is, I'm shocked. He's the one guy from the 80s who had a huge run of great movies. No one ever talks about him because they weren't really genre films. Like, he didn't, you know, it's not the way John Carpenter was, Walter Hill, you know, um... Uh, Landis, uh, uh, Dante, you know, all the guys that we hold up on a pedestal from this era, you know, and Badham is the guy that for some reason no one talks about. Broke it, broke out big with, uh, Saturday Night Fever in 77, then did Dracula, a really great Dracula with Frank Langella and Donald Pleasance. Um, yes, oh, that one was real good. He had the double whammy in one year, War Games and Blue Thunder, um, their stakeout, Bird on a Wire. Uh, then the 90s wasn't so kind to him. I think after this he had, uh, well, he had Point of No Return, which was pretty good. It did okay with um, uh, Bridget Fonda. The Hard Way with Michael J. Fox and James Woods, which we loved, uh, did okay. Uh, another stakeout, which, oh boy, did they derail so hard with that one. And then this. And they opened it Thanksgiving 95 thinking it was going to be good counter-programming to everything else. But it opened the same day as Money Train. And Money Train got all the buzz, even though it wasn't even a big hit itself. But it got all the notice. So if you want to see a sophisticated thriller for adults, you went and saw that. You did not go see Nick of Time, which Nick of Time is a better movie. No, absolutely. I mean, this is my first time watching it, and I will say it was pretty good. I'm like, uh, if, if knowing that, I would have to say release timing was why this movie failed like if you release this like maybe around uh january later that year or october or... october is a good day for thrillers for people who want some something like that but don't want to deal with the horror yes so i think i think they should have opened it a month or so earlier but yeah it got trounced it, it never really found an audience on video that's the other thing that's sad even when johnny depp like all of a sudden like broke into mega stardom no one went back and talked about this movie not the way they did with like donnie brasco and Benny and June and stuff like that. This is the one that just got thrown away. And I think it's because he's completely normal in this one. Um, which is rare because he usually has some sort of tick. But you can see there's an undercurrent with him and Walken about their weirdness. Really permeates in this stressful situation. If you don't know the movie, it's a real-time movie. Meaning every minute on screen is a minute yeah, yeah. Minute, how do I say this? The running time is the moment from the beginning of the, the, you know, there's no time jumps. So literally it's a 90 minute movie and it takes place 90 minutes in one day about an assassination attempt um, where Christopher Walken and his partners, the huge conspiracy to kill um, the senator, California senator, right? The governor. 
a governor. Um, she feels like a Nancy Pelosi type is what they're trying to aim at with Marsha um, Mason. Marsha Mason's character. And so he's just a normal everyday dad. They kidnap his daughter and say, we're going to kill your kid if you don't kill this lady and you have this much time to do it in. Um, and it's just, God damn it, it's so stressful. And Walken, holy fuck. People forget Walken was a, a villain kind of actor for a while before he became like the eccentric weirdo dad and stuff like that, you know, like a couple years after this. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you look back at something like, you know, The Prophecy and... Yes. Gosh, I keep forgetting uh, the one he did with uh, the one he did with uh, Sean Penn, where he played their dad. Oh, uh, at close range. We were just talking about that last episode. That yes, exactly. Yeah, when you see those two movies, it's like, oh god, yeah, no, he can play a villain. It's where it's yeah. terrifying. It's once he played. Um, I think everybody started to notice him after he did Dead Zone, and then he was the villain in A View to a Kill. Well, oh, yeah. it was it was more um, villainous roles. I, it seems like you know, Batman Returns was a big one for him too. Though nobody really oh, yeah. even talks about that. It's always Dane DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer, but he's the real villain. Like the one hundred percent, no tragedy, no nothing. He's just uh, he's just a flat yeah. He's villain. a yeah. He's a corporate scumbag. Yeah. He's a, he's a billionaire one percenter asshole. Yeah, and, and he's and, he's bug eyed yeah. and he's sweaty in this. And he's got a little pedo mustache and, and he's really like just horrifying in this movie and he's gonna fuck Johnny Depp up and, and Johnny Depp is just trying to find anybody who will help him but it just seems like every other person he turns to either gets killed or is part of the conspiracy oh yeah and the only person he does uh, manage to convince finally uh, throughout the movie is Charles Dutton shining and cleaning his shoes yeah and he oh, I miss Charles S. Dutton I don't see him anymore but you remember for like 10 years there though he was always a good go-to supporting actor oh absolutely I mean you saw him in Rudy you saw him in Alien 3 oh god there was Mimic. another movie yeah I'm trying uh, to remember too where it was very prominent um but I just that's something I miss but also I miss the look of these kind of movies the way that Badham films this and, and like the way that McTiernan directed Die Hard you know using a lot of noir shadows and, and, and like the, the very particular lighting that he would use made these movies seem glossy and sophisticated digital film it just doesn't seem to even care about having a cinematographer and having to have a look and I, I miss that yeah no I would love to see that come well, who knows? Like, I mean, especially with a strike going on, this might shed more light on independent movies who will want to resort on something more artistic. Yeah. Another guy from this era who, who shoots like Batman and has that kind of filmography um, was Peter Hyams. And he always had, like, he's a guy that people don't talk about very much, but, you know, he did Running Scared, uh, Narrow Margin, The Presidio, Stay Tuned, which is a weird one in oh, his uh, filmography. Uh-huh. Um, uh, yeah, Time Cops, Sudden Death, stuff like that. Yeah, no, oh God. And I lo- well, I definitely enjoyed Time Cop, but I love Stay Tuned. Yeah, you did, yeah we oh, did that man. one years, almost 10 years ago, we did a very special episode about Stay Tuned and uh, Mom and Dad Save the World. 10 years? It's been, I mean, we're at, not, we're almost at, what are we at now? No, 10 years. Oh my God! 10 years in February. It's crazy, I know. Um, what is our it's, it's, next film? Um, uh, mm. Well, there's one more thing I wanted to say about that movie. That dream sequence. Oh, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I thought it was like kind of comical. I was like, okay, wait a minute. How does this expert security man, you know, manage to miss Johnny Depp, but Johnny Depp hits him, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, Christopher Walken's still there, you know, at the end of the hallway, grabbing him and throwing him out the window, even though he realized he just killed him. I'm like, oh, it's a dream sequence. He knocked him out. 
Yeah, that's a hell of a stunt sequence. You know, the movie is, if you like uh, Hitchcock-style films, this is definitely an homage to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And the people behind the whole assassination attempt. Her fucking husband. (laughs) We're giving away the movie. Sorry, everybody. Spoilers. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's been decades. They had time to look this up. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But even if you know all that, it's still an amazing movie. You don't know who to trust in this. It's great. Oh, absolutely, yes. Please do give it a watch. All right, what's next? Oh, this one I definitely remember from my childhood because it was all over the place. Robert Rodriguez's Desperado, which is uh, more of a sequel to his independent movie, El Mariachi. Yeah, it's weird. It is it is a sequel, but in a way it approaches it so that you don't need to see the first one. Kind of like the way Army of Darkness did. Because Evil Dead 2 is basically a remake of the first one, just on a bigger budget and wackier. Whereas Army of Darkness, you know, they're like, well, not a lot of people saw the first one. Let's just sum this up as quickly as we can and move on. Right. And that's what they do. And I haven't seen this movie in a while. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, no, the, now that you mention that, yeah, the first one was retconned. However, when it came to Ash vs. Evil Dead, uh... You know, Ash mentioned his sister who died in the first one. I was like, and she even, like, the actress even came back in an episode. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. Okay. Yeah, that, that franchise is a little weird because it kind of jumps around its timelines. But when you have a Necronomicon involved, hey, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> There's time travel for fuck's sake. Um, but yeah, I saw Desperado at a double feature of uh, uh, Labor Day um, 95. I saw Mortal Kombat and Desperado. And it was that for an eighteen-year-old who was an action junkie, that was like ice cream on top of a steak. You know, it's just like oh, delicious, delicious. I mean, not literally on top of the steak. You know what I mean? After the dessert. But the following, yes, yes, yeah. um, following this beautiful um, entree. Yes, and I just remember being blown away. Now I had seen a couple John Woo movies before this, like Hard Target, and I had seen some a couple of his uh, um, Japanese or yeah, Hong Kong features. And you can see there's a huge influence throughout Desperado uh, of John Woo and his gun style. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Robert Rodriguez, I mean, with uh, Dusk Till Dawn, you know, he definitely wants to go a little over the top when it comes to the action. Yeah, and it's funny is how fast he shoots movies. I don't know when Desperado was done, but you have Desperado in September... Or yeah, it's August or September, and then you have uh, four rooms, which is part. You know, he filmed one of those segments, which came out Christmas of '95, and then three weeks later, you have From Dust Till Dawn. That's a, that's really fast filmmaking for him, and it's not like phoned in cheap filmmaking either. Mm-mm. No, because I mean, uh, when he makes a movie, especially when it comes to action sequences, like the people he works with, like they're all on board, they're all you know in sync. To the point where it's like they don't need to do too much shooting. If anything, it seems like knowing that it seems like he'd be under budget. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: is I wonder about him is if he does like all he works everything out through um, shit. What do you call that uh, when you draw everything out? Uh, uh, storyboards. Uh, does yes. all storyboards? Does all you know like uh, rehearsals and everything? He is ready to go, so he doesn't waste any film because you know that first movie he made, El Madarachi. What was like twenty five thousand or something insane? Like I think it was even less than I think it was like seven thousand. Um, yes, it was. That's like, what it was. Yeah, so he shot it with like ends of film, or whatever. This isn't digital. He's not shooting with his phone. And then this one he shot for seven million, and to this day I'm still flabbergasted. He was able to get so much out of seven million dollars. But the guy, you know, he he he. I think he went to school like 
in his head, like studying all the tricks of the trade that all the filmmakers he liked had done. That way he didn't have to figure it out on the spot, that he already knew how to make things, like through editing, you know, and stuff like that to make it look good. And the movie looks, like I said, the way that John Badham films, he uses a lot of good shadows and light to make it look glossy on a very low budget. And it's still surprising to me that Dust Till Dawn cost $25 million because it's all oh, basically... God, all the prosthetics and everything. Yeah, it must have been geez. that because it's all in one location. But yeah... Um, yes. I think what what makes Desperado stick out from a lot of the John Woo uh, carbon copies is the fact it has a very good macabre sense of humor. And I almost wonder, <laughs> I wonder if Tarantino came in and worked on the script, you know, without credit or whatever, on some of that stuff. That monologue he gives, that joke, I'm guaranteeing you is his own. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it because those two are like, you know, great. They're like great friends. Yeah, they sure. say they're brothers. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. They did. They were, they were like kind of coming up together. And again, uh, even that uh, opening monologue with Steve Buscemi, you know, giving them that little warning about, you know, Antonio Banderas' character. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, in every Robert Rodriguez movie, you're going to see uh, Danny Trejo or uh, Cheech Marin. Yeah. <laughs> and even like the background people, like the heavies, all people he's worked with before, he, he keeps them close. But yeah, all that I definitely felt like had some Tarantino influence. And again, my favorite on-screen couple, easily, if you were to give the top five, Antonio Banderas and Selma Hayek, the oh, chemistry yeah. they have with each other is beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, don't they kill her off like in the first five minutes of part three? Which, oh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico? Yeah, I feel like she dies. Yeah. I hated that. It really pissed me off. I know. It's like she got fridged. That's what was fucked up. We're we're gonna see. We're eventually going to discuss the third one, but I don't remember walking away with good feelings about it. Right. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it. But um, again, going back to this one, I mean, the, the way Antonio Banderas like carried himself in this action aspect. You know, the little dream sequence at the beginning when he's singing. Uh, I remember the song. I know this. I have it on my Spanish playlist. Damn it. But yeah, when he's singing that song, like that's actually him, and I'm like, wow. I mean, he does a really great job. Yeah, well, I think he did a musical like ten years after this called um, Nine or something like that. I'm not sure if it's not Mariachi. That's what it's called. No, you know what? No, 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 I'm wrong. He wasn't in that movie. I don't know if he's he was in Evita a year and a half after this. That's a musical. Well, I'm I think I'm thinking of the musical not with uh, him. It's with Daniel Day Lewis. Never mind. Right. But I will, uh, also, regarding the music, uh, Los, the band Los Lobos was the ones who did the music for this movie, and my God, did they just kill it. Okay, see, I thought it was the guys that were in the band in Dust Till Dawn. I thought they did the music. But yeah, it's really great bluesy and, and rocking, and it's, it's a lot of, really atmospheric. And of course, yeah, the, the aspect, like going through the whole, um, I, uh, well, I don't want to call it a Pueblo, but considering where they were and where it took place, I would, you know, because that means village in Spanish. Uh-huh. Uh, again, the set that they were going for, the way they uh, decorated it, it just looked beautiful. Definitely gave it an Old West kind of vibe. Yeah. And Antonio Banderas' character, you know, he's a man on a uh, quest for vengeance against, you know, the one who ordered the hit on his girlfriend, his former love, and who shot him in the hand. And the way this just unfolds out, it's like very small scale, and we, then when we find out who did all this yeah it's a bit of a shock when he has a chance to kill the mob boss but doesn't 
Yeah, it's it's a really good small thriller. Um, it made I don't know if it was the hype or what it is that made this little nothing movie with Antonio Banderas. I think was a rising star, but he wasn't a name yet. And like, well, I want to say like um, the Transporter. These little movies that have a buzz on them, whatever, and then they end up making a. De- they're not huge hits, but they make a decent amount of money. Twenty five million dollars on a seven million dollar budget. It's pretty good. But it exploded on video. I remember my grandfather was trying to tell me about yes. like some action movie that he had saw that he thought was really stupid. And he goes, oh, it was uh, it, uh, called Desperado. I was like, oh, I love that movie. But I can see like a 65-year-old man or whatever not getting into something that crazy. Right. But, oh, man, honestly, I felt like something like this was needed. Definitely like, you know, original action movie. I mean, yeah, El Mariachi may not have been like... Like the big, like the biggest thing to go see. Not many people would have seen it, but yeah, as you said, you know, El Mariachi wasn't necessary to see Desperado. But those who have seen it, uh, one of Antonio Banderas's buddies was the original El Mariachi. Right, right at the end, yeah, with those badass uh, uh, guitar cases. The guitar loaded. cases, yeah. <laughs> Two of them were machine guns. One was a rocket launcher, and they went out fighting. I'm like, I hated to see them die, but still, it was such a fucking cool sequence. And Selma Hayek comes in with the car. Runs over one of the hitmen. <laughs> you, you know yeah. what's funny is I think of the way that I think of this trilogy is the way I think of the Man with No Name trilogy is that um, uh, for a few dollars more is essentially just the same. You know, as the first movie. You know, it's the same cast, basically same vibe. Um, but then, like they go epic. You know, his was uh, Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez is Once Upon a Time in Mexico, which. Oddly, is a different Sergio Leone Western, but it has that feel. Of course, yes. And, like, when it comes to, like, Mexican culture, yeah, Robert Rodriguez will highlight it. Because, uh, you know, being where he's from and, like, you know, growing up in Texas, yeah. He'll definitely want to show and represent. Yeah. Um, what is our next movie? Okay, next movie is... Sorry, hold on. I'm forgetting. <laughs> the other two I want to save for last. How many have we done so far? Oh, yeah. Casper. Okay. Um, Oh, God. I I probably wore... I'm surprised I didn't wear out the VHS on this because, you know, I, you know, growing up with the original cartoon, watching it early morning, loved it, and then when they announced this movie with, you know, people I'm familiar with, you know, Christina Ricci from the Addams Family, and then, of course, Bill Pullman from Spaceballs. I, I think this whole movie still holds up really well. Yeah, you know what's funny is I was thinking about this. When it came out, I saw the drive-in, but I didn't really care for it because I was at that age where I was just like action crazy or horror crazy. And I see it now as an adult, and I actually really enjoyed it. I, I had a lot of fun. I was truly impressed by the the set that they built for this. I mean, it's like... So it's already a set with a house, but then it's in like its own little corner. I don't know how they did this, but it must have been very expensive. And then you're counting like... Yeah, the special effects aren't convincing. They're early special effects, but they're not supposed to be because it's based on a cartoon. They're ghosts. They're supposed to look that way. Exactly. Yeah, it fits very well. And honestly, it, it still holds up. You know, again, it's still passable considering that they are ghosts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just there's such fun characters. And I th- really thought it was going to run out of steam because I was like, wait, they've already resolved the thing with the brothers. And I was like, what the hell's going on? And then you forget there's a whole other chunk with the movie. Oh, yes, with uh, Kathy Moriarty's yeah. plot where she just 
pretty much wants to get to the treasure in that, uh, stored within that house. You think the ghosts chew the scenery? Holy shit, Kathy Moriarty fucking picks it up, covers it in barbecue sauce, and... <laughs> yes, oh yeah. And Eric Idle as her, like, lawyer. <laughs> yeah, it's... And they got tons of cameos in this. They got Mel Gibson. Yeah, there's a scene where uh, Bill Pullman, his face changes. So they had Rodney Dangerfield... Mel Gibson, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Um, they also have cameos from Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> Father uh, Guido Sarducci from SNL. You know, so I yes. guess um, Spielberg is really pulling his. I think this is one of the last productions from Amblin before DreamWorks would start. Right. Yes. And on, again, it's just a well, great overall family film, and especially with the closure for Bill Pullman's character. You know. Him being a uh, a psychiatrist for the dead. Yeah. Well, it's interesting is I didn't notice the first time I watched this, and they don't really talk about it, but it's a lot about loss. And, you know, he, Cass, the whole thing with Casper and his brothers, they're like, they seem like they're cool with being dead, you know, whatever. But there's a whole, like, undercurrent that Bill Pullman's character is really broken and obsessed with finding yeah, his wife. Yeah, the death of his wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is a really good role for Christina Ritchie, too, because... See, I can see as a selling point they have her in it because of her connection to the Adams Family movies, but she gets to play the normal person. She gets to be more lively. She gets to be sweet, cute, funny, whatever. She gets to have love. And it's completely different than her character from Adams Family, but it also feels like it's a good companion to it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's also like, you know, later on when Bill Pullman's like discussing, like he's having a discussion with her, regarding Halloween or dressing up and this and that. Like, they are, he is, it's like gently acknowledging the fact that she's starting to grow up. And it does it in a very subtle way. And it's understandable. You know, especially from like a parental dynamic. You know, yeah. looking down at your kids getting older. Yeah, you know, I, I always, I was looking this up and I knew it was a decent sized hit. I didn't know that it was a massive hit internationally. And so it cost $55 million, but it made $237 million, um at the theaters but you know of course it probably made massive money on video because that's what it's kind of made for um and why did universal never do a sequel and it's because harvey the company that created casper and licensed yes. it out and, and that and licensed out richie rich they didn't like the deal that they had with universal because they hardly got any of the box office of it so this makes no sense to me though they take their deal over to warner brothers where they make two straight-to-video sequels. Well, what kind of fucking deal did they have with that? Did they get, like, a massive chunk of the video sales? Because those didn't go to theaters. They were never designed to go to theaters. It's one of the most confusing decisions I can think of. Oh, absolutely shit. Knowing that, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense because every sequel that came out, again, yeah, was, like, kind of cut back on production and uh, quality. Yeah. Yeah, it was just so weird. Yeah, so I don't know if all the money went to Harvey to license the character, so not a lot of it went to the budget. But I remember there was Casper, a spirited beginning or something like that, and then Casper meets Wendy. And I've always just been curious, like, how did Casper not become, like, a franchise in the theaters? Because you know they tried um, with Flintstones and stuff like that, and this is around the same time. I thought they would just try a little bit more. Dennis the Man, or not... The Dennis and Menace didn't make a ton of money, like, 30, $35 million or something like that. And um, Richie Rich, that made about as much as it cost. So I can see why the sequels went straight to video, but the Casper thing just blows me away. Yeah, no, that is a, knowing that, yeah, it is definitely a shock. Yeah. Oh, it's like it's like with the Disney ones. Lion King makes like 400 million in America alone. 
and then you make the sequel go straight to video, you're just throwing money away. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's on Disney. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just a weird decision. All right, uh, right. Wh- what is our well, next film? Uh, there's one more thing I want to say about Casper, though. Sure, like, sure. When it came to the ending, and he sees uh, when Bill Pullman gets his closure, I honestly thought that was like a, oh, that was like a beautifully uh, acted scene. It was, yeah. Oh my god, yeah, that it, and that, and then of course how the movie ended with the little musical number by uh, Little Richard. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that was great. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, it, it, it's definitely a must, and it's a classic for me for a reason. Okay, next movie. War again stars my favorite action star Dolph Lundgren. Is this and his I, best movie? Is this his best? Yeah, I didn't say it's definitely up there for me. Yeah, the. We did an episode about Dolph Lundgren a few years ago when he was starting to have a revival with Aquaman and then he was in Creed 2. Um, and this is the one movie I wanted to cover, but at the time I could not find a copy for you to watch. You know, we did like I Come in Peace and Master Universe, Red Scorpion, I think uh, Big Trouble, not Big Trouble in China, I'm sorry, Showdown in Tokyo. I think those are the ones that we did. And yes, this is during an era where he's coming off of Universal Soldier, and so he's getting, uh, his career has a little bit of pickup, at least when it comes to his paydays and studios want to deal with him again because it was kind of dropping. Um, and, and I don't understand, like, you look at the backstory of this particular one. The rest of them I get. Um, he did one called Joshua Tree, a.k.a. Army of One, which is loaded to the gills with John Woo-style action, but there's not a lot of plot. I can see why they went that they put that on video. Pentathlon, it, it was one of those like pet projects of his because he actually performed in the Pentathlon when he was a, a, a young man. But it's very slow and it looks cheap, so I understand why that also went straight to video. This one I don't get. They showed this to test audiences. They had this at film festivals. And it blew people away. They absolutely loved it. And when Dimension bought the rights, they said they, they signed a guarantee with the production company. Um, see, okay, hold on. Let me rewind a little bit. There was a company called Vision Entertainment. Right. Vision International, and their biggest one was probably Sidekicks with Chuck Norris. They did I Come in Peace. This was their mm-hmm. movie, and they they were kind of going out of business, so they sold it to Dimension. So that was part of the guarantee. They said, you have to put this in theaters as part of our contract. Dimension said, ha, 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 fuck you. We don't give a shit now. And they sent it straight to video, even though everybody who saw it, even like the writers and creators, like this is a great movie. It's it's small. It's not like a big epic action film that usually can, comes out around this time, but I still see an audience for this. It's... It's kind of feels if you like the Expendables, but with more serious tone to it. That's what this is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you have like your little funny like quips here and there, but again, yeah, a group of mercenaries assembled by Dolph Lundgren to you know try and bite out this indigenous uh, again the indigenous community being this, these particular mines. And, of course, they want to secure the rights to the mines, and they're going to try and convince them any way they can. But, Dolph Lundgren eventually, after interacting with him and, you know, spending time with him, starts to change his mind. And that causes a rift within the entire group. And this is, like, quite a cast, too. you got Tommy Lister, you got Beatty Wong. Oh. There's Charlotte Lewis, who uh, I think most people know from The Golden Child. Um... One of my favorite actors, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm saying his name right, 
but Tim Guiney, Guiney or whatever, um, most people know him as the preacher that helps James Woods in John Carpenter's Vampires, but he is the New Zealander guy in this, and I love his performance. Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> oh, no, he was definitely the more spiritual person. I mean, gosh, he was recruited in the San Diego Zoo, you know, really care, you know, wanting to break the animals out of there. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, um... The fucking villain. Yeah, also... The villain, dude. What a performance. Holy shit. Trevor Goddard? Yes. yes. Who most people probably know from Mortal Kombat as, um... Kano. Thank you. Yeah, in fact, that's where I first learned of him. And I, and I honestly, after rewatching that scene at the end, uh, right before the big fight showdown between him and Dolph Lundgren, I'm like, wait a minute. I did see this late night when I was a kid. Okay. Staying up. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, it did bring back memories. It seems so familiar as it played out. But oh god, you wanted to punch the shit oh, out of him fuck in the yeah. beginning. He's a That's real a shit. Bar fight. Well, I think I think they did a really good job of getting a memorable cast with good like roles for them to play, but they didn't cost a fortune. They're almost all character actors. I mean, some people are before they became stars. Like Catherine Bell, most people know now from Jag. Um, and Trevor Goddard, like I said, this right before he did uh, Mortal Kombat. Um, I'm trying to remember who else is in this. Um, but it's just like one of those movies that just raw it's kind of you know it's a military dirty dozen kind of action movie and they're fighting for you know something that's right you know it's it's simple in its breakdown but i think it's really good in its characterization i think the action goes on a little too long i thought it was a little exhausting i think it's weird that i saw like what seemed like six boats filled with eight guys apiece, but they blow up like a thousand guys <laughs> God, yeah no seriously i mean it was nuts oh gosh and then uh, Tiny Lister Jr. as like one of the mercenaries. Oh, jeez, terrifying! Definitely, yeah, yeah. No, oh god, definitely gave some Debo vibes as you had to watch over the village. <laughs> so it makes and honestly, the way he played out, the way it was playing out, yeah, it was making sense for him to like, you know, kind of turn against Dolph Lundgren because yeah, he was just there to get paid. So uh, the guys that. The guy that wrote the main script was John Sayles. And if you don't know John Sayles' name, shame on you. Because uh, he's like the king of writing like really good B-movies at A-level. And then using that money to fund his independent movies like Eight Men Out, Matawan. Um, uh, uh, I can't think of it all of a sudden. Um, Brother from Another Planet, stuff like that. Um, I think his biggest one was Lone Star with Chris Christopherson and Matthew McConaughey. But... Um, he wrote like Alligator, The Howling, Piranha, one of my favorites, Wild Thing. And this is one of the scripts of his that didn't get made for a wow. long time. And then they had the guys that did Demon Knight and like uh, the Kung Fu Panda movies. Those guys, uh, they added more action to it. Because apparently the original script was much more pensive. Yeah, well, I mean, he was, he did, uh, I think he wrote the second or third Jurassic Park as well. So he was a guy that could write really fun B-movies um, with a brain, and then he would use all the, that those huge paychecks, whatever, and go do smaller movies. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it all really, definitely seemed to have worked out for him. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote the actual first script for E.T. when it was supposed to be a horror movie called Night Skies. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What is our final film? Okay. Oh, final film. Again, this is one that my uh, that my mom watched a lot, and of course, you know, Lori Petty 
being huge off of uh, a league of their own tank girl dude man I'm sorry. again for me i feel like like scott pilgrim it just did not find an audience yeah I, I remember when it came out, and I was really hyped for it, and then they said, like, re- weekend box office was, like, $2.3 million and it cost, like, forty. I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> that's not good. And I feel like I feel like Lori Petty never recovered from this. I don't know if she did any studio films after this. She did a couple small independent ones, and then I think she just retired because I think it broke her. And I, I just think it's a phenomenal, very particular voice that comic book movies weren't doing back then. And I gotta tell you, frankly, probably wouldn't do now unless it was like on Amazon or Netflix where they have, they're allowed to have a unique voice. Oh, yeah, honestly, I do feel like that. I do feel that is the case. And it's a damn shame because, you know, it was very, it did have that particular vibe. I mean, there was the animated sequences when it transitioned to like, you know, locations and certain chapters. Yeah, and it's it's punk, I man. It's a fucking soundtrack too. Yeah, it's a rock and roll Mad Max movie based on an English comic book. Um, I believe the guy behind Gorillas is the guy that designed the character. So you see all these animations based on his original that design. Explain, that's why it looks so familiar. Yeah. And oh it's, my god, I love the makeup done by Stan Winston. I love the action. It's just got so much energy and fun, and she gives a great performance. And Malcolm McDowell is a fucking nasty ass, perfectly cast villain. Oh god, yes. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite moments. It's very simple, but like Lori Petty, and she's kind of flirting and messing around with Naomi Watts yeah, as, yeah. In, as she's in the prison. That's one. But when they're, like, uh, being captured by the Reapers, which are those kangaroo people with ice tea and all them, I just love how he's, like, really con- really convinced that they're spies. They're, like, hyping up with nitrous oxide. Nitrous, nitrous oxide. Straight up asks them how much they pay to spy on them. And I just love the way she said, $2.15. <laughs> just yeah. to fuck with them. It's like, you know, she'll never not fuck with you. That's the thing. She's very resilient, and I love seeing that. Yeah, Naomi Watts in a very early role as kind of a mousy, uh, nerdy friend of Tank Girl. Um, as Jet Girl, uh, we have Ice-T. So here's the funny thing. They get these great character actors. Ice-T is the one big name. But they put them in this really great kangaroo mutant costume design of Stan Winston. And I always love the line that Stan Winston said is that I don't, care, uh, I don't do special effects. I create characters. And that's what he does with these guys. And he works with the actors to make sure they're using the makeup in the best way possible. And there's a one of the actors is Jeff Cober, who's always a villain. Except here, where he plays like kind of the doofy one named Booga. Um, I, I love his performance. And uh, uh, Oh, and one of the bad guys from Men of War is a bad guy in this as well. Um, fuck, I can't remember his name. But you know what I'm talking about. Don Harvey, that's his name. Where yes, he, that's who it yeah. was. Oh, God, the one who was trying to hit on Naomi Watts? Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just think it's a really fun... <laughs> Rachel Talele is a director that no one ever talked about as a film director. Most people know her now because she went over and she started doing a, uh, Doctor Who and whatever those, those spinoffs are. I can't remember the spinoff shows. Um, but that's how she rebuilt her career because she was a producer on for New Line Cinema and like, she did the Freddy movies and stuff like that. And then she did... She directed the final Freddy, well, supposed final Freddy, Freddy the not final nightmare. Um, oh, okay. Uh, Ghost in the Machine, which is a mediocre horror film, uh, and then this, and this should have broken her out, and then they threw her away like hot fucking trash, and I've always been upset about that. Oh, that's 
absolutely. I know. I mean, it's not her. Again, as far as like what it goes for Tank Girl or not finding an audience, that's not on her. And again, the way this was done, especially with the animation sequences, I fucking love those. Those are just so smooth and perfect and stylistic, and I was here for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. she's come Rich. over. She's come over here, and she started doing superhero shows. So she's done Superman, Lois, American Gods, Doom Patrol, Iron Fist, Riverdale, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, The Flash. Okay, so after Doctor Who kind of wrapped up for her, she did all those. Oh, and then she went back to Doctor Who. Okay, well, at least she has a career because, I don't know, I just feel like her visual style really should, though, be back on the big screen instead of doing TV shows where it's, it's kind of limited. Oh, absolutely. Oh, gosh, I was trying to remember who played DT, one of, like, who's pretty much the head kangaroo. Oh, God, Reg E. Kathy. Right, and, and we saw him, what, last year in Airheads, right? He's one of the producer guys? He was, and he was also uh, one of those uh, gangsters in uh, The Mask, the ones who tried to rob the bank, the one that got killed. Oh, right, right, okay. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, man, again, like the special effects, you know, again, they pretty much went as practical as possible, made it very believable. And, again, just the whole style of it all, I just fucking loved it. Yep, it's a great fl- uh, film or whatever. Uh, sadly, the Blu-ray is very expensive, so you're going to have to find it digitally. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> All right, Damn so uh, that is it for 1995, everybody. We're going to head on over to 1996 on the next run. Thank you, and Jacob set us out. All right, everybody. All aboard to 1996. Namaste and good luck, and be excellent to each other. Ba-bum. Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> He said all aboard, so I couldn't myself. <laughs> Everybody, uh, what, what was what's my line? Oh yeah, uh, party on, dudes, or some bullshit. Bye. <laughs>